Hey everyone, my name is Matthias and welcome back to Free Shipping, the podcast where we sit down with entrepreneurs, merchants, marketers, and more to learn about their journey. Having spent four and a half years in e-commerce and speaking to some incredible people who have inspired me, I thought, why not share these stories with my network? And hopefully, these are shared even further. Today on the show, we have Des McManus, the co-founder of FFS and founder of Mailcoms. And that means today we'll be talking about shaving and post-mail. He's pretty competitive both in the workspace and also outside of the workspace. But to give you a brief introduction, Des spent most of his early working life in business-to-business sales and quickly realized he was more of an entrepreneur than a corporate guy. He founded his first business, Mailcoms Limited, in 2004, where he saw a niche in the mail fulfillment world, which gave him a great knowledge and experience of the UK postal market. Building on this, he actually used his knowledge and he saw a gap in the Razor subscription market and co-founded the world's first female-led subscription business, FFS Beauty Limited. FFS became the largest direct-to-consumer shaving brand registered in the UK, having sold to over 250,000 customers and reached a turnover of over $6 million. As mentioned, Des is also a competitive and keen endurance athlete and has competed all over the world in high-profile events such as multiple Ironman finishes, including the World Championship in Hawaii and what is dubbed the hardest foot race in the world, the Marathon. I'm going to ask you to confirm this, Des. Is it the Marathon de Sables? De Sables. Yes, it is. De Sables. The Marathon of the Sand. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, gosh. Well, we'll get in there. Well, look, welcome. I'm really glad to have you here today. Thank you, Matthias. And well, good to be here. Yeah. Well, well, look, we, I always like to start out a little bit more so that our listeners can get to know our guest a bit more. There's a lot to unpack within that intro in itself. But I think the first thing I, I'm kind of curious about is you mentioned you started out your early working life in B2B sales, but then you moved on because you realized you're more of an entrepreneurial guy. Like, could you unpack that a little bit? If go back and tell us kind of when that pivot came and what sparked it? Yeah goes back a little bit before that as well which I'll tell you a little story so in the mid 90s I started to have a little a little sort of entrepreneurial sort of a spark shall we say and while I was working full-time I I, um, I got into entertainment phone lines joke lines which led me into business communications but I'll, I'll come on to that shortly but we basically founded a joke line system which is basically a wind-up line where it's a premium rate line you you handed a number to your friends. You rang the number. It got wound up over the phone, and we reached up to twenty. Yeah, <laughs> and we reached up to twenty-two thousand calls a day, of which we were earning fifty p a call. So it's very successful, very quickly. And bear in mind, I was only twenty-five. But unfortunately, because it was so, so successful, it did gain the attention of of certain regulatory bodies, and we had to change. And they very quickly changed the rules, and so that came to an abrupt end. But it did lead me nicely into business communications, and I started doing a lot of. Uh, inbound and outbound sort of telecommunications which then got me into the world of business mail and that's where we started i started working for a a mail fulfillment business and and did that from sort of late 90s to mid 2000s having worked my way up in that business and that's what led me there and i was in the corporate world stuck in this corporate world and i and i didn't uh, i didn't really want to be stuck there i felt something inside screaming to to start my own business and that's kind of how it all became and that spark started on those joke lines okay so already i mean in kind of our pre-call but even more so i'm learning more now there's 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 clear connectors like you you take something you've learned and somehow you'll move into that now i'm not sure if you've taken the joke stuff per se 
into any other parts of your career, but at least the business to the to the male side of things, you definitely utilized. Yeah, apart from trying to be a bit of a joker, I think I think I left that one there really, and uh, and and set about becoming a, a proper professional business person. I think was probably a better uh, better uh, way of saying it. Okay, cool. And and look, I think we'll dig in because I know there's a, a franking machine supplier story that we're going to delve into. But the other side that I think is really interesting, and you know, this is across some entrepreneurs is that you know, you all have a lot of drive and you kind of have to, if you're going to go start your own business and just kind of figure stuff out along the way, you know, you're also an avid athlete, like you, and specifically endurance, you like to put your body through a lot of work. I'm curious, just when you think about either business or just day-to-day living, like how do you think that impacts the way that you run your business or even just view how you think about the companies that you have started so far? It's a great question, Matthias. And and one I'm kind of you know, a very easy one to answer. I'm a, I'm I like to think I'm a quite a driven person and very competitive as well. So I, in fact, in a couple of businesses, the, my two most recent ones, Malcolm's and FFS, I, I like to be a bit of a disruptor. I like to compete against the big boys. I nothing sort of frightens me, but to do that and to make a difference, you have to have a level of energy and a level of drive. And a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of business people, will tell you exactly the same. In the early days, you know, just before we getting off the ground. Eight, 17, 18 hour days, you hear these stories all the time. Um, and without that, you know, you won't get over the first few hurdles. And that's really what drives it. And it's the same with some of the endurance events I do. Some of the training, especially for the marathon disabled, it's disabled. We, we athletes who do that, the level of dedication training that goes into that is phenomenal. But you have to be so focused and so dedicated to the cause of that. And it's very similar in business life. But one of the most important things which I'd like to just point out is when I'm out pounding the trails and running, you know, miles after miles, I have this time to myself where I can focus, I can business solve problems, I can apply, I can come up with some great ideas and I'll very often come back from a two, three hour run. And the first thing I'll do is I'll run through the door, not even grab a glass of water, I'll straight into my laptop and make notes of everything that was in my head. And, and I've solved many problems and come up with some fantastic ideas that have proven successful and have been a massive contributor to the success of FFS and Malcolm's. And that's, and that's still right to this day. Even yesterday I was out running, came up with a couple of ideas, put it to the team and they went, yeah, great idea and away you go. So that's, that's the connection. And without the one, I don't think I would ever have the other and vice versa. So it kind of helps both, really. Hopefully that answers your question. A hundred percent. And I think as someone who's, you know, training for a half marathon now, I'm only just starting to realize that, like the time that you have alone. And also I think the the natural kind of serotonin and dopamine cake, it even puts your brain in probably a different gear towards solving things. And just just for our listeners as well, like to put into context this marathon, this oblet that you keep referring to could you just briefly summarize what it is? Because I don't think people maybe realize how insane of a race it really is. Well, as a coincidence, it's actually running right now. They're 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 running the event. It's 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 an annual event. I think they're on their last full day today, where you run two hundred fifty kilometers on average, and is roughly a marathon a day across the Sahara Desert in between forty and fifty degree heat. But it's also self-supportive, so you have to take all your own food, all of your own uh, supplies, your medical supplies. The only thing they give you is water. 
So, um, and, and, and so that the key is to be very light, very agile, but also you've got to have a minimum amount of calories that are very, very equally sort of distributed for every day. But one day you do two marathons and then you have one day off. Jeez. Okay. I mean, look, we could probably do an entire episode just on that race and the preparation, but we'll pivot back to kind of the entrepreneur journey. And I'm wondering maybe, you know, when we were talking before, before you started FFS, which I think has been a bit more focused while you still have both the businesses you're running now, you mentioned that there's a franking machine supplier and a story behind this. I don't actually know what a franking machine is, but I want to hear more about what that is. What's the story? And I know this leads to mail comms. Yeah, sure. So franking machines, essentially it's a also mailroom equipment. A franking machine is a postage meter. That's what they're called, I think, in your part of the world, postage meters. And essentially, they they drop, they, they just apply postage to an item, whether it's a parcel or a letter. And it's equipment that we stepped into that business in the business-to-business world in sort of late 90s. And, and I worked for the Europe's largest franking machine supplier and maintainer. But I, again, my entrepreneurial spirit, I quickly realized I could do something similar myself. So I wanted to, uh, so we started, we founded Malcoms as a small sort of family run business. The industry was crying out for a bit more personal service and all that. So, and then it quickly grew into one of the largest independents of its kind in the UK. One of the important points though, if you, if you look at the timelines, it was, this was sort of early 2000s. This was just when people's buying habits were starting to change by, by, online purchasing so we were the i was the first company to put franking on the internet because because the internet was a very was a threat to the whole industry you know the whole letter industry if you can imagine it so email that kind of stuff so a lot of the industry was very scared to, to push into that world back then but we embraced it I, I learned how to write my own websites in the early days so the first malcolm's website with an e-commerce platform on it which was a very basic php script that I did to a, to a checkout car. It was quite, it's quite good actually. I was quite impressed with myself back in the day. And it got off the ground. It was the first company in the UK that actually did that, and uh, and that's how that started. It got me into the whole e-commerce world and the fulfillment world, and that was the connection into FFS. Gotcha. And before going into FFS, so I'm curious. So a big thing is, you know, they always say if you build it, you know, people will come. In reality, that's not really always true. And given that you just mentioned you were really the first people in this space to embrace, you know, bringing it online, and it was an industry that was maybe a bit hesitant to it. So, how how did you bring about the adoption and get people to it? Is this relation to Malcoms and the internet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so I actually I wanted to learn a lot about SEO. So you. You'll laugh at this. I own some property in the south of France. So around sort of mid-2000, a couple of books written at the time. that were, I think there was 101 SEO tips and SEO for dummies and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. I knew nothing about it. So I literally thought, okay, no, there weren't the agencies that there are to death. I really need to learn this because it was important the way that you uh, you wrote your, your website to, to align to this. So I went to, to my holiday home in France, spent about two months literally cover to cover and absorb this information. This was quite early on of the internet. This, and uh, and I learned myself how well, how Google was was. I taught myself how how Google was reading this and how it would apply. And we became Malcolm's became 
on top of Google for Franking Machines, but not only that, Franking Machine Supplies. So I bought domain names, pretty much everything to do with franking before even the industry even thought about domain names. So I own frankinginc.com, frankingmachines.com, you, know, you name it, I pretty much bought the lot back in sort of mid 2000. So, and we, we put shops on all of those and, and it became very successful for us. So we, and that's how we bought it to the, uh, to the market. So you uh, taught yourself how to code, built the site, knew that you needed to have SEO, didn't know that, decided to learn that. Uh, nothing had been done online before, decided to battle an industry that probably didn't really want to adopt it. And you're just love the mentality of just like, well, I guess I got to figure this out. Let's, let's figure it out. <laughs> exactly that. That's exactly what it was like. And, and, and unfortunately I did because of my, because the industry was very, a lot of all my competitors were quite old in the tooth, not, not in age wise, but very set in their ways. Um, I did alienate a lot of them because we were kind of a threat. Suddenly I became a threat to their business, but all I was doing, I was going, I was moving with the times and that industry kind of wasn't, you know, I liken it to the blockbuster story. They could have been the Netflix of the world, but they decided that they wanted to keep selling DVDs and games, you know, and then we all know what happened there. So, so, and I like it to that. The industry changed, you know, technology changes, industry changed with it. And so I always believe that you do have to embrace those changes and move with those times. It's happening now with AI, you know, we talked about that slightly before the podcast today. And that's something that we're, we're working on across the businesses now. We're adapting and changing all the time. Yeah. 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 I could not, could not agree more. And it's something that even we'll talk a, a bit later about how like technology has influenced your business. But, you know, so, okay. So you've learned a lot of stuff at this point. Like I mentioned, you've learned how to web develop, you've learned around SEO, you've learned around fulfillment. And so then this is the interesting part to me. You pivot from mail, mail like mail stuff like literally mailing to women's razors. Okay. Um, like the two are probably so far beyond connected. So how did that first even come to play? Well, it was very nearly not women's razors. It was very nearly sex toys. So, yeah. <laughs> so in uh, as Malcoms became the size, we got we got really good e-commerce experience. We started to learn how to sell, but the industry was quite small, and I wanted to get into a bigger wanted to go into markets which had a much larger market sort of addressable market and uh, the franking industry is very very small so there was a failing sex toy business that i nearly acquired back in 2014 2013 2014 that fell through but then i got kind of got the itch to do something and a friend of mine was talking about these the Dollar Shave Club and Harry's and so, you know, the American subscription market that was kicking off in the UK, in the US. There was a couple of small startups that had started in the UK to try and compete with them. But then we were sat having, we were having a curry actually up on Broad Street in Birmingham, a bit of a drunken curry. <laughs> we thought, I know, what, what, and I said, has anyone done it for women? And we thought, we looked and we thought, actually, no one's doing this for women, not even anywhere in the world. So we thought, we, after a bit of research, we realised that, women account for 30% of the shaving market and it wasn't being served. So we spoke to our partners about it and the family and thought, yeah, actually, you know, and, and kind of gained a bit. Over that drunken curry, a funny story that came out of that was we actually, and we actually bought the domain name. Yeah, let's do this, right? We actually, you can tell it was founded by, uh, there's was, there was some backstories about how, how, how FFS was started. But the first name that we came up with was called the Lady Shave Club. But then in, this, in the sober light of day, we realized that that may sound a bit, a bit too risque. It wasn't really the kind of market that we were going for. Probably more akin to the, uh, the sex toy business that we were uh, nearly bought. So, so we, we decided to, uh, 
like many ideas you have when you when you when you're having a few drinks we actually decided to follow this one through yep. we met up on the following monday we we thought should we give this a go um and and that's how it kind of started and we did employ a marketing agency to help us come up with some branding and some names but a few ideas in the early days but friction-free shaving was chosen because of the fun that we could have with the, with the letters ffs as we know they stand for something else which your listeners will probably aware of if children who were like in their teens sort of late teens at the time come home and we said we started the business called ffs and and the question was dad you do realize you know what ffs stands for don't you because <laughs> and it was but that was the idea it was the one that we could have fun with in the yeah, brand yeah. so the agency that we used came up with a few ideas and that was one that we chose so so that's kind of how it got off the ground and there was, there was many other stories that influenced how we then put that into reality utilizing the knowledge of the franking industry and the mailroom industry, which really led the beginnings of that business, which I can go into more detail if, you, if, if, if that helps. Yeah. So, I mean, okay. How many people were, I guess, over this drunken curry when you're making the idea? There was myself and my friend and our two partners. So they were egging us on. Okay. And, um, and that's how it, that's how it, that's how it's gen- genuinely started. We had a lot of support from our female family members as well. Um, and uh, to put it into reality, because, you know, uh, two men starting to feed them, although it doesn't really matter, we wanted to make sure what we did create was was led and influenced a lot by the fit that, you know, the, the females we had were supporting us at the time. So, yep. and that's how we put it into practice. Okay. So then, okay. So it sounds like, you know, you have this idea and I, and I love it because this is something that, you know, we all have had those conversations where it's like, who's got the next million dollar idea or something. But you guys actually put this into practice. You buy the domains. You're working with the marketing agency. You're making it happen. And now let's maybe speed forward a little bit. Like you've got your first product per se. How like how did you initially bring this to market? And what did the first maybe six months look like when you're actually starting to trade? Okay, so for six months we didn't trade. We count that is. And what those six months look like? Very important six months. And this is the connection with Malcoms. So. Because I'd gained a lot of experience of the UK's postal network and fulfillment, I knew to, because you know, there's a lot of businesses that spend money for growth, spend money for growth. They don't really focus much on the profit. And, I, and it's not a business model that I tend to agree with. So I was very adamant that I wanted to make sure that this thing was not a, a cash burner. Um, and subscription businesses are very much that and can be that if you're not careful. So the one thing I wanted to make sure was that we could fulfill and deliver to our clients in the best possible way. So our products, we designed them around the postal service. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, a large letter has a maximum thickness of 25 millimeters. Yep. So we, we, like a lot of startups and stuff, just to test the market, we had a lot of sample razors and handles and blades and this and that and other. And we narrowed it down to products that would go into a 25 millimeter box. And you see that a lot now. A lot of other people have caught on to that. A lot of startups, a lot of packages that you'll get in the post, that thickness for a reason. But that drove even even designed the arc of our handle, our sort of iconic rose gold handle. We even designed the arc of it so it never exceeded 23 mil because we had to allow a, million, a millimeter and a half either side. Sorry, 22 mil, millimeter and a half either side for the packaging. So, so the arc of the handle was actually designed to fit in that 25 mil box. That allowed us to utilize the Royal Mail's postal network, which also then allowed us to gain access to discounts that not many people would have known about if they didn't come from that industry. 
So we built the whole business with all that in mind. And I'll give you some examples of that. So um, I, I knew once we get to a certain volume, we could get volume-related discounts, but that was, wasn't all. I also knew that if I could get enough people that were in Scotland that had our service, we would give a bag of product to the Royal Mail that was already dedicated to go to their Scotland warehouse, so they didn't have to pre-sort. So essentially, we pre-sorted using a bit of technology into eight separate sorted bags in the U. So some for north of England, some for east, south, west, northern Ireland, and a few sort of loose ones. So we, we pre-sort for the Royal Mail, and we knew once we did that, we also gained further access to discounts. So we were fulfilling, you know, a part, a package and parcel competing with people where they're spending two or three pounds. We we're fulfilling in it even today, we're only paying sort of 80, 70, 80 P. So to get that box to that customer, which which has enabled FFS to become a profitable business where others have faltered. So it was the right decision at that time. But that's that was how those early days uh, started. It wasn't all plain selling because the, the rose gold handle that we that were iconic, sort of were known for, yeah. actually turned out as, as an accident. So we had a, a batch of, of, of gold handles that we'd had in from China, gold, and we were going to just test the male market a little bit in case the female market never worked because we had to put quite a bit of money into buying some initial ones. We thought, I oh, know, let's get a few little male ones and we'll see how they sell. When they got delivered, the samples looked great, but when they got delivered, they were rose gold, so we put them online. And our female customers, they love the rose gold handle. Yeah, so then we we went back to China because yes, we want more gold handles, more gold handles. But the next batch they said were yellow gold, so we, we had to put it with inconsistent Chinese quality. So, so then we decided to, which is a point actually, we'll probably discuss. We decided to bring our tooling back into the UK and make our own, which is why we made the Arc of it twenty five mil. So, so that's how the rose gold thing became uh, became a thing. It was actually an accident, but we found that customers loved them so much that so we started making, uh, building our own. And that's how that was the early days. That was the early days yeah. of the business, what it looked like, and how we turned it into reality. God, what did you end up doing with all the extra gold ones that were sent on the second like shipment? Uh, well, we, we kind of sold them, but then when we did, everyone sort of complained and it wasn't a great start. It was kind of when you chug it off and learning this. So we, yeah, we then got back and said, No, we want those ones that were rose gold, not gold. And uh, anyway, they eventually we realized that. But to stop that, we had to give consistent quality, better quality. We, we wanted to make sure we, we control that quality. So we, we bought it all in-house in the end. Gotcha. Okay. And then, so let's move forward a little bit in the journey. And, you know, earlier in the conversation, you mentioned that you really love kind of going against the big guns and stuff. So bit of a precursor, but, you know, you had a big ad campaign that came out and it it obviously drove, I think, a lot of sales for you, but it also kind of ruffled a bit of feathers and stuff. So maybe let's let's talk through what the ad campaign was and why. What was the I guess the success driver behind it first? Well, we we, we actually ran ran a number of ad campaigns. In particular, we had two video stroke TV advert campaigns. The first one we did, we did this thing called Shoga. If you Google it, FFS Shoga ad, and it's women. It was a really funny and great idea. The team came up with at the time, and it was it was the positions that females make when they're shaving. Because whereas men just shave their faces, but women are around the backs of their legs and they're doing all this sort of uh, yoga, hence the word shaving yoga, shoga, it's called shoga. And, uh, and and we did it in a bathroom. I was at the studio down in London doing it and with with the team. Although the, the actress had some underwear on, we had brush strokes over the top of the underwear on the finished video. So it looked like she was nude under the brush strokes. But because it was implied nudity, Facebook banned it. And we made... And we made, we made, uh, there was a, a TV program and it was the top three or the top banned 
controversial ads of 2017, something like that it was. And, um, and we went there with McDonald's, uh, another brand, and they loved our advert. But the big thing about how ridiculous it was that Facebook banned it because of this implied nudity rule that they had. So that was the that was our first one. We then ran another one, which was a quite a professionally done TV campaign at the Channel Five Studios in uh, in London, and um, we were really focused on wanting to show females actually shaving hairy legs because we've all seen the the adverts of a velvet scarf falling over already shaven legs in a, on a on a beautiful model, you know, and then whilst whilst waving a razor around. You know, some some like brands do do that sort of thing, or did historically. Uh, it wasn't a route that we wanted to go down. We wanted to show an hairy leg and then show the end results of it actually shaving that leg. And we had to get special lenses in to do exactly that to show the growing hairs. And the model had to grow her hairs for a week, which was a weird request. And I remember sitting in the studio watching, and it was exactly as you see on the TV, where you've got these two director chairs in front of these really sort of industrial-looking t- TV screens watching these monitors, the director shouting over to us as the as the sort of founders of the business. Is that good enough? No, it went closer, closer, closer. So they really had to zoom in to get the, and again, I think that's on the internet, the, the FFS ad. And you can actually see the, the hair stood on end as they're shaving. And that made it, we got a lot of PR from that because it was starting to show the, the reality of female beauty rather than, you know, the model sort of side of it. And it was, it was, it was very good. Unfortunately, though, we were starting to attract some attention from some of our competitors, so uh, which 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 led to a few little events happen because we started to get a lot of internet noise. Internet noise results in sales, and some of the, the sort of incumbent sort of the well-known brands they they see that as a maybe of a potential threat to pinch a bit of their market share. So we did gain a bit of attention, shall we say? Yeah, I think you did. You got into a bit of David and Goliath battle. It sounded like which the end of it came came out pretty strong but like how how was it going through that period when you know you realize that you're kind of waking waking the behemoths and you know honestly you're you know you're a rapidly growing business but then all of a sudden you're like wow are we becoming that big that this these brands really care about us well yeah we had a we had a a letter we received from from one of the very large well known sort of FMCG businesses that own two of the of the most known sort of uh, shaving brands in the UK. And uh, I mean, you can tell you're starting to encroach a bit into their market share. We also gained a bit of space in retail as well. So we're competing in retail. So we, we originally started the business of friction-free shaving. Now, friction-free was really about how easy it was to order from us and and how simple the process was. You go online, order would deliver for your door, you know, no hassle and all that kind of stuff. But uh, we we gained the attention of one of these brands who complained to the Advertising Standards Agency that our our, our brand was misleading. And uh, the word to be friction-free was, and I think they quote, I seem to remember, I think I'm pretty sure in the letter they may have quoted Newton's Law, where it was impossible to have a friction-free shave. We tried to appeal it under sort of puffery, which is that's all it was, a bit of puffery. It was never intended to to mislead customers into believing they're actually gonna get a totally friction free shave, whether it's done by some sort of some sort of magic. But but as it happens, the words friction free shaving were descriptive, so we couldn't trademark it. 
and that that phrase was being used by some of our competitors as we were gaining this traction they were starting to use it in some of their ads so we quickly realized we needed to change the, the branding anyway so it wasn't a major drama but it was almost like a badge of honor i remember framing the letter and put it on my wall me being quite a competitive person so i was like uh, but you know it was a bit of fun and we dealt with it at the time and we we adhered to uh, to the request from the asa and and it was a bit of you know i just wish i was a fly on the wall in some of their uh, their offices at times when they see it. you know all, all's love in, in war as they say and all, all's fair in love and war as it is i think it's the phrase so uh, it was fine we, we never fell out and we just side by side in a similar space so it was all good yeah and just lastly on this like if you can remember when you first got it what emotion did it initially evoke i was kind of ha- i was kind of almost quite pleased that we my competitive side come out i was like have we really upset you know we really got into these radar where they think we're a threat to the business and and, and so they want to do this yeah it was it was because I, I think that was the competitive side coming out it was just, like i said it was a badge of honor <laughs> so it yeah. was like and it was and it was a bit of fun going back and forth to them and stuff and eventually we kind of agreed to uh, move on anyway because it was part of the business plan so yeah i was I look back now and you know me me setting out to to disrupt a marketplace and that was kind of objective achieved really at that point yeah a hundred percent and the other thing that i'm always kind of curious to talk to about people on the show is you know as your business grows like your responsibility and your role will change a lot so as a co-founder you know from i guess day one to year two to year six like how has your role evolved and is there any i guess is there anywhere where maybe you'd surprise people that you spent a lot of time like what did your day-to-day look like if that's possible to answer um yeah as a fast growing i mean ffs became much bigger than malcolm's and bigger than we ever thought ever would be and and you know you have to remain agile all the time that's the first thing and also yeah you are almost all parts of the business because I've got a technology background, so I'm, I'm over some of the tech. I've got a marketing sales and marketing background, so I'm over some of that. As we, you know, the thing with TV advert, sometimes, you know, there is no data. There's no blueprint for what we've done. You know, a lot of businesses have got a blueprint they can follow. If we do this, we'll get this. There's nothing. So, you know, we'll run a campaign and hope it might work. Some will flop, but some will be amazing. And, now, and then you're in the danger of heading towards catastrophic success. So you are often playing a game of whack-a-mole where, you know, you run a massive TV campaign and, it goes really well or 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 covid for instance a good period for us it's hard to plan in advance for these sort of things so you are you know we're literally rebuilding processes daily all the time at all parts of the business to ensure that we could fulfill customers requirements at the same time you are you're, you're also problem solving a lot and i do i make this comment a lot business owners i think are often just professional solutions providers that's all you are hit salt problem solvers that's what you're professional problem solvers and that's kind of one thing that i've learned especially as, as fast growing as ffs was some sort of sort of 18 19 20 so yeah that, that's kind of where i was all over the business yeah it is a pretty common answer that i hear it's never one thing every day could change a little bit i've not heard the whack-a-mole but i think it is a very good analogy as soon as you fix one thing something else comes up and you know they never stay in the hole. Something's going to pop up that you got to give it a whack to. Yeah, 100%. And you just go and you move on to the next thing. So uh, eventually they all calm down a bit and you can have a bit of time back. That's a bit of time out. But then something else happened and off you go again. Which, to be honest with you, as, as active as I am, I didn't mind. And I found it quite fun, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. And 
so that actually kind of like leads us into the other part of just the discussion today. And you kind of mentioned already is like your background is in a bit in technology. You've done sales, you know, as most of the people we're talking to, like they are entrepreneurs of some sort, they're normally a merchant of some sort and technology, obviously it, it plays a big factor and it's a rapidly changing space. And so like, how has technology played a role in the growth of the business? Cause I imagine it, it's changed. And obviously that's kind of what you and I, how you and I initially connected, but I'm curious, like how, how, when you think about technology and where it's gone, what that's really looked like in your journey. Yeah. Funny enough. In the early days of FFS, you, you sort of going back to 15, 16, um, there weren't many subscription platforms available. So we had to write our own. Uh, and then you write your own with what technology was available at the time. I know Shopify and things like that were around, but it was early days. So we were kind of using well-established platforms like WooCommerce with a bit of a, a bespoke or a bespoke website with a bit of technology here and everywhere. Essentially, we had to build it all ourselves. And we, and, and we were then very reliant on on techie guys and we were, we were a sales and marketing company but actually we were, we were focusing more on the tech stack than we were as a sales and marketing which was a, was a problem for us if i'm honest with you as it came along as it, as it evolved it became an even bigger problem because we lost our agility so we've adapted as technology improved and we've we've adapted and changed our platform accordingly mm-hmm. and and now even like, I'm not sure if you made any recent changes or you've done anything in the past couple of years, but like when it comes to looking at a technology or not even, let's say not looking at technology, when you realize there's a problem or an opportunity and you realize maybe that a technology provider could help with that, is there a way that you typically kind of look at evaluating something? Because I think this is an area that, you know, it can be quick and scrappy and, and in turn you can get something done really fast, but maybe you miss the mark on stuff. Some people want to RFP it and they want to, you know, take six months to do it. Like, how do you go about looking at that? Um, we need agility. We can compete so much better against the big boys if we're agile because they're not. They're big tankers. To turn them, they'll take years sometimes. For us to compete level and be very relevant and very current, we need to be agile. Being a, when you're reliant on, on, a, on a complex tech stack, you can't be agile. So I, we, we, as an example, again, when we first connected, we moved from that into a Shopify platform with Recharge Bot on the side. This was off-the-shelf stuff. So we evaluated that by the fact of, can we do this and quickly? No, you can't. Right. So if you're constantly talking about the same problems over and over again, rather than trying to keep fixing the same old tech stack, and say, literally look at it. Will it achieve our business objective faster? Yes, it will. Let's get on with it. And that's and that's pretty much, if I go back to 2009, it was 2019, that was when we moved from our own bespoke platform onto Shopify. And it was it was an absolute game changer for us from we stopped pretending to be a tech company to then to then become back into a sales and marketing business, which that allowed us to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, what, to your point, what most merchants want to do is they, they want to be product focused. They want to be customer focused so that you can really, I think, do what you're good at and not focus on stuff that... Look, to be fair, based on your background, you can do tech if you want. I just maybe it's not something you really want to spend your time doing as much. Exactly that. Exactly that. We, yeah, we, we've stopped becoming a tech company and we start, we start becoming a sales and marketing company. And occasionally they'll start swinging towards a tech company and I'll put a stop to it. And I'll go, no, it's too complex. There's apps to do that. It requires developers, then I'm not interested. So there is a, a certain elements to what we do does need a little bit of code. 
but uh, that's not sort of written. And that's really around the subscription flow through the site. But but we try now to focus on our core strengths, which is we are a a you know a shaving beauty business, not a tech company. And that's 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 the the mindset change that we are to constantly trying and drive. And we 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 didn't realize that at the time, but that was one of the the biggest things that we do now. Yeah, and. Last kind of question on this. You mentioned that, you know, you were talking about AI a bit earlier. Is there any new technology vendors or trends that you're kind of keeping an eye on because it's something that you think is potentially going to be, could be utilized by FFS or Mailcoms? They probably won't read an email for a week, but what they are, you know, like things on WhatsApp and some of the other platforms and TikTok and things like this. So we're, we're utilizing the latest sort of technology where our customers are, where they're, where they're present. To allow us to engage with them better in those in those in those platforms, and that and that is you both using AI and some new technologies that are available to us now. Nice, good to know. Good to know. Yeah, I think everyone's finding a lot of unique ways. I feel like on the AI side of things, the other word that really combines with it quite well is automation, because you're you're looking to automate a lot of areas with AI, and and that will lead to better customer experiences. I think the customer support side of things there's a lot of improvement that AI could lead to that and obviously help for a lot of scale as well, probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. AI customer support isn't so we can just do away with customer services people and give give more to robots. It's not that. We want to get back to our customers faster, quicker to to you know to improve their experience with the entire business. And that's whether they want to whether where they want to purchase more products from us, want to change something, want, you know, do so. We want them to have an amazing experience with us, not wait around for the answers they need. And we want to give them good natural answers that are accurate and quick. And that's absolutely right about scalability as well. That now enables us to scale without without having to firefight and employ more staff when we're, when we're you know, and you could wind up in, what's we don't mind doing that, but it's trying to do it quickly because sometimes the rushes and the and these peaks and troughs happen. You just you can't always plan the coverage for it because again, you there are no blueprints for some of the things that you do, so you don't know how they're going to do. So you to avoid that catastrophic success, I've said it again, AI will help us with that. Yeah, man, I completely agree. So last couple of questions now. So you've done a lot of looking back during our conversation. I'm going to ask you to look back a little bit more, but you know, as they always say, hindsight's twenty twenty. But I guess if you could go back to maybe your 2015, actually any time in the past when you started your businesses, based on the knowledge that you have now, because you've acquired quite a lot of knowledge, what what's one thing maybe you'd go back and tell yourself when you're kind of starting this all out, if anything? Okay, I'll give you I'll give you the the main thing. My team hear this all the time from me, and we and since 2020, it's become even more apparent and important. Be in control as much as you can of, of your own quality of service, your own supply chains, and be less reliant on third parties as you possibly can. And that's across all parts of the business, whether it's marketing, whether it's tech, whether it's your supply chain, your manufacturing, because then 2020 comes along and, and suddenly, you know, as an e-commerce business, we were, we were in the right place at the right time, but we the most of it. So again, the whack-a-mole came out. And I'll give you some examples of that. You know, we we luckily we'd already decided to bring out because we wanted to become far more sustainable for business. So we wanted to bring our tooling back from China where we're having our handles made. And we actually ordered it to be shipped back into the UK in two thousand in 2020, February 2020, a month before COVID. Now, if we hadn't have done that, 
we probably wouldn't have had a business today. Yeah. And it, was, it wasn't because we knew COVID was coming. We'd already planned ahead for this. We'd already planned ahead because we wanted to do it. And that was because I, was, I wanted to be more in control of our supply chain. So we now employ local manufacturers, literally a few miles down the road, to be more carbon neutral. Our, our manufacturers are now local. The, the guy that makes the rubber grips for our handles, he's 200 yards from our warehouse. So he can literally walk them to the building in a box. So where we assemble the handles and then they get they shipped out in the boxes. So from a sustainability perspective, it was amazing, but also from a reliable reliability supply chain. And it goes, goes into my point about be, just have more control over your reliability of service because you do not know what's around the corner. And 2020 showed us that. Yeah. So when it was proved, my point was proven and we, we were able to be agile and, uh, and, and move forward where others were stuck. Yeah. Yeah, it was, that was a hard time. But I think that is, it's a really good shout. And it's something that I think a lot of businesses now probably are realizing. But to your point, they probably had to go through a bit of pain to realize how important that would be. So I think it's a really good call out that anyone can take and apply to any any aspect of their business or even your craft. If you work within a corporate company, if you're within sales, I think it comes down to control the controllables. Yeah. Exactly. Control the control. You're absolutely right. They, I've not heard that. I've not put, put that way before. I've also heard that, but it's pretty much what I say. Yeah. Control the controllables. Controllables. Yeah. yeah. One of my biggest things that we do, and you protect your business, you protect business continuity, which when, when you come for an exit, which I've had discussions over exactly that, business continuity is the number one important thing that they come through in, um, in, do, in due diligence. You know, it, it's, you know, what is the risks for the business? And they, and they look at all of these things. And if you want to have de-risk that as much as possible and just, just for your own sort of income, absolutely. Yeah. Well, look, Des, last question for you. And one that I ask everyone and get a lot of different responses. But, you know, when you're retired and when you're whenever you're done working, I don't know if you will stop working at some point. You might just keep going. But when you do and you look back, you know, what will success really look like to you both it could be from a work perspective, but also like a personal perspective. I could answer this in one sentence, and it's pretty much related to our, how we open this discussion today. Success for me will be running across most continents in the world, uh, looking forward to the freedom that my working life has given me. I like it. It gives me freedom to do the things that I enjoy doing more. And that, to me, it's not, not money, it's time. It will give me time and the freedom to enjoy that time. So, and that's, that to me is what success looks like. I think that's the most succinct answer that I've heard in a while, but, and, and just having known you Des for a bit of time now, I think very much summarize even you as an individual, which is a great thing. So look, I, uh, I really appreciate you being on the show today. I think, I mean, I've learned a lot. I love the fact that this started out initially as a gag line. And now we're all the way down to, you know, still working in the mail business, still continuing to shave sell razors across the UK. I guess the real last question for you now is anything next, anything on the horizon that maybe we could know about that's not too top secret? Uh, well, yeah, actually to do with Malcoms, we, because the freaking industry is moving more towards parcels than, than more parcels than letters. We want to do add value in a world that doesn't even exist. And that is, we've kind of invented, I use the word invented, uh, a moon pig, but similar business, but for boxes and packaging. So we've now developed the technologies and the, we've bought the equipment where customers can go online, order 
packaging and boxes, have it full color pr digitally printed and have it delivered within a couple of days in low, low minimum order quantities. So the problems that we've solved is that you don't have to have tens of thousands. So you've got, you've got no, no problem with the room stock. You can actually have full color and and you can have extremely fast turnarounds, which can sometimes take weeks, if not months. So so that, that's how Malcolm's that technology of the parcel world has moved us into that now organically because that's the growth of that that industry but we wanted to add value so and one of the examples of that site one of, one of the sites that we've brands we've done for that is fastprintedpackaging.co.uk which is fast-printed-packaging.co.uk and you'll, you'll find it on there and we've we started to get a lot of traction and also gain the interest from some of the uh, large packaging competitors so that's a big growth part of our of that business as well so that's the next big thing for us, really. We put a lot of money and effort in the last two years since COVID, and that's the fastest growing part of all of my businesses at the moment. So that's number three. Awesome. <laughs> I love it. Another David and Goliath that sounds like might be coming out soon, yeah. but amazing. Well, hey, Des, again, really appreciate the time. I think everyone will really definitely enjoy giving this a listen. And yeah, I'm sure we'll talk soon. Brilliant. Thanks. Thanks, Matthias. Cheers. And that was Des from FFS and Mailcoms. What I love about this story is Des builds on his success and learnings. He took his learnings from mailrooms and leveraged them to give FFS a unique edge. He uses his training and love for running as a way to help him create new ideas and solve problems for his business. I'm sure we'll learn more from our next conversations. And until then, thanks again for listening.